This evening, it's our opportunity to look at one of the most extraordinary passages in all the Bible. I can still remember as a child having a children's storybook with the stories of the Old Testament, and there was one page I was afraid to look at. It's the picture of a man with a knife holding it up in his hands and looking at a child. And I thought, my goodness, my dad might really be mad at me. (laughs) And of course, I realized my dad wouldn't do that. But I thought, this is a Bible story. What is it all about? And of course, it's the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. It is a story that is filled with tremendous emotion and profound meaning. Tonight, we are bringing it very directly into our study of the doctrine of God. Because this story tells us a very important facet of who our God is. And we see the name here in the Hebrew that means the God who provides. The God who's able to see the future and already be acting in accord with what shall come to pass. So as we look then at this theme, I want to tie it in with what we've already suggested in the briefest sort of way. As you know, for the last two weeks that I've had the privilege to share with you, we've talked about the self-existence of God, the asa-ati of God, the from-himselfness. And we also then recognize that that means that God is everlasting in character, that he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Time exists within him. He's not limited by time. He transcends time. Time is his creation. And these ideas mean that God is utterly unique, the creator who is over all of creation. And that implies then that the self-existing eternal God of Scripture, the creator, the one who revealed himself as the I am that I am, who exists only in the present tense, is able to provide whatever sinful mankind needs for our salvation from sin. Our time together last week, we talked about some of the everlasting gifts that God gives, gifts that are consistent with his nature. And you may remember that there were several, and some of those that I tried to emphasize included everlasting love, everlasting joy, an everlasting life, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting way of living, an everlasting kingdom. These are all revealed in Scripture. They're things that flow from God because of who he is that he makes available to us. Well, what we're looking at tonight is one of these everlasting benefits that has to do with God's provision so that we might be forgiven. And it brings us from the doctrine of God directly to the saving work of Jesus Christ. The Bible being one book with one central message, as it's been described by different people, the Bible is all about Christ on every page. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. He said, uh, when you go to England, it doesn't matter whatever hamlet you are in. If you start walking the road, sooner or later, it will take you to London. Because London is England. It will, you'll get there. One way or another, it's going to take you there. Someone else, I think I might have heard in maybe right here in our preaching or sermons or Sunday school class, that if a thread were in the Bible and you pulled it backwards, whoops, continuous unity. All of scriptures about Christ. Jesus said these pages from uh, the Old Testament, whether you're in the law, the prophets, or the writings, speak of me. That was his teaching as he spoke on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples on his resurrection day. So what we want to see then as we think about scripture, as we turn, if you have your Bible handy tonight, we want to look at Genesis 22, but as you do, as you turn to that passage, you'll see that it's interesting that the last verse of chapter 21, which is verse 33, that immediately brings us to chapter 22 and verse 1, says this, Abraham called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So we talked about the everlasting God. 
And that topic of everlasting God brings us, even in the biblical text, to the story of the God who provides. Now, this place where he was at the end of chapter 21 is a place called Beersheba. It is a place of covenant, a place of oath. It was a place of waters, and so the theme of mountains and waters naturally fit this story. So that's our backdrop in our notes. You might think of Abraham being at Beersheba by where there's lots of water. There's a debate over who owned this property, and they settled it by a covenant agreement. And so we begin reading now as the Lord, the eternal God, is being called upon, the story that tells us about the God who provides. It's provided on the mountain of the Lord, from the spring to the mountain. So here we now read in Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the reading of God's holy word. The everlasting God introduces us to the God who provides. As we think about this story, there's some key themes that we need to consider. Why is God called Jehovah Jireh? The Lord will provide. And we have that story, that image. 
of a father ready to slay his son on an altar with the wood ready to be burned with a burnt offering. What is the context of this story in Genesis? Have we considered some of the profound ironies that the story brings? Do we see how it foreshadows the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we understand what an atonement by substitution means? And do we see the integration of faith and obedience? There's a lot there. We can only cover a little bit on each of those points, but they're all raised by this extraordinary story. What is the context then of Genesis 22? We've seen it's at the spring of Beersheba, so this may not be Beersheba, but water is what everything needs to live. He was living by this great spring, and he knew that the ancient story of the Bible, going back to the time of Adam and the fall, told us that one day that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, there was a promise of a future son to be born that would, in fact, destroy the destroyer of life on earth. Theologians call it the first giving of the gospel, the proto-evangelion. Now, that context tells us the story that brings us ultimately through the flood up to the story of the dispersal of all the nations, the Tower of Babel. We know that the world is filled with conflicting languages to this very day. The languages of humanity are confused. And out of that confusion of all the nations, Abram, a man is called, and he is promised in Genesis 12 that he will have a land, he will have a seed, and he will be a blessing through that seed to the world. A special land, a special seed, and a blessing. It is that seed that is especially in view, which is the story of Isaac. Abram is hoping to have a land. He never really got to have the land. He was a sojourner, a Bedouin, in his land his entire life. But he hoped that he would have that seed that someday would bring blessing. In chapters 13 and 14, we have the great story of Lot and Abram separating, and the story of this mysterious king of righteousness, Melchizedek. He will appear in theology in a couple of other places in the Bible, in the Psalms and the book of Hebrews. In chapter 15, we have the unilateral covenant that God makes with Abram. Do you remember the story where the animals are cut in two and a smoking pot, a burning fire passes between them while Abram is in a deep sleep? There's no partnership here. Abram can't participate. He only knows about it, and God is promising by saying the entire covenant is up to me. I am passing alone through the condemnatory image of death if the promise is not kept. I alone will keep the promise, and there is the shedding of blood that is part of my promise. Wow, that's an image that you could meditate on. We see that picture as a promise of a future Savior that will give himself completely for others that they might live. Chapter 16, the story of Sarah and Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. Remember, Abram wanted to have a child. The Lord had promised he would have a seed, and he's getting old. And he says, how about a surrogate arrangement? We'll have a child by Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, and they have a son named Ishmael. Chapter 17, the covenant of circumcision is given, and there is the promise of a child that will come from the very body of Abraham. And the Lord so promises that that he says, I'm even going to change your names. So you'll remember this today. When a child is born, he's given a name. When this promise is given, even their names are changed. Abram is no longer just Abram. That means a, a powerful father. It means father of nations. Nations are going to come to you. Sarah's name is elevated to being, if you will, the princess leader of God's kingdom. And chapter 18 is the story of the pleading of Abraham for Sodom because judgment will fall and God will rescue Lot from the destruction of Sodom in 19. 
In chapter 20, Sarah, Abraham, and Abimelech, a fascinating story where uh, Abraham doesn't even really tell Abimelech that Sarah is his wife. You can read that story. He says, she's my sister, which she was. She was a distant sister relationship. And at that point, she almost becomes Abimelech's wife. This is a soap opera. Aren't you reading your Bible? This is exciting stuff. You, why do you watch television? we got better stories in the Bible. Okay. Chapter 21 reaches the crescendo. The birth of Isaac, when Abraham is 100 years old. He'd been waiting for a son. He tried to have a, another means of having a son than God's method. And Sarah's a very senior lady. She said, people are going to laugh when they say, I have a baby at my advanced age. How is it possible? And Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. That was a sad moment in time. The Lord intervenes. They're sent into the desert, and now the story seems like, finally, they're at Beersheba, a wonderful place to live. It's almost as nice as living, let's say, by the Gulf of Mexico in some town like Bonita Springs in Florida. All of their needs could possibly be met. Beautiful place to live. They're comfortable. They're at peace with their neighbors. That pesky old half-wife is gone with the baby that's grown up to be a laughter at the child of promise. They have their son. It's all going to be great. Isn't that a great story? It's where it ought to end. It's not where it ends. Because we now come to chapter 22. The irony of the story, which we've just read, I want you to take that son, and I want you to take his life. How could Abraham have children, as many as the stars in number, if his son he's waited for, for his whole life is taken? Abraham's name now means father of nations. It's been elevated. How can... He had to be a father of nations when his only son is going to be gone. Isaac's name, as you know, if you remember your study, means laughter. Imagine you name your child laughter. Laughter, would you quiet down over there? Laughter, it's good you're laughing, but it's too noisy. Shut the laughter down, but laughter, I love you. Laughter, that was the name. Isaac's name meant laughter because they were filled with joy. But horror is now going to take away their laughter. This child is now going to be sacrificed. Now, what what is this story trying to teach us? What are the key themes to be considered? Why is God called the God who provides? Well, we looked at the context. Let's take a look then at how this story foreshadows the cross of Christ. This is a great trick question and one you should never forget after tonight. Where in the Bible is the word love used for the first time? It's in this chapter. Did you know the Bible goes for 21 chapters and never talks about love? And God is love? Now that's strange, isn't it? If God is love, why doesn't he reveal love until here? Because God wants to show us that love is understood when a father has an only son and cherishes him with all of his life. That's what love looks like. A love of a father for his only son that he's waited for forever. That's the first use of love. He's his only son. Three times in this passage, he will say his only son. Does, does this ring in your mind of any verse you might know in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God waited to Genesis 22 to give us the story of what will become John 3.16 in its first clear presentation. An only son loved by the father is going to die. The place is important. Very clearly, do you remember how that passage begins? I want you to get up, and you're going to go to a place called Moriah. I'll show you the exact mountain where I want you to go. And on that place, 
you are going to offer him in sacrifice. Well, according to Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, Mount Moriah is exactly the spot where the future temple was built. The exact spot was already chosen. I don't know that David fully appreciated that when he chose Mount Zion and said we need to build a temple here. And when Solomon built it, they become fully convinced the place of sacrifice was the place where this sacrifice of the son was to be. Further, the burnt offering. The word holocaust, we hear that word now because of the tragedy of World War II. These are words taken together that means entirely burned. Holocaust. Entirely consumed. A burnt offering is described in the book of Leviticus in chapters 1, 6, 8, and 16 in the Torah or in the Pentateuch. And when you read that with care, a burnt offering requires a male without defect, and it's for not radical personal rebellion, but even for sins you don't even know about, unintentional sin. And thus it represents devotion and full surrender to God. Even the kind of sacrifice that's in view is an entire sacrifice of one that is not known to have any sin. It's on the inside. Whatever it is, not even sure about it. And it must be a male. And he must be perfect. Oh, my goodness. Do we know any part of the Christian religion that has a sacrifice of a male who's perfect and without sin, who's fully devoted, surrenders himself entirely? Isn't that kind of interesting how this is a lot of years before the Christian story? And there's this intimate relationship of only the father and the son at work. Yes, they go, they travel for three days, and they have a donkey, and then the donkey that is bearing the sacrificial wood and things is left behind, and it's only the father and son who go to perform what God had called for with full obedience. And the son is bearing the wood. It's on him. Now, we cannot determine exactly how old Isaac was in this passage. But we have a number of hints. He already had been weaned, so we know he's not a little, little child. But he's also old enough to take a three-day long tour and then be given a lot of wood and put it on his back and climb up a mountainside. That translates into a young teenager. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you had a wrestling match between a 100-year-old and a teenager, who would you put your betting money on? Especially if someone's life was on the line. Son, I want you to bind your hands now because you see that altar over? Dad, you're going to have to catch me. If you try to tackle me, you're going to have to fight me. The only reason that's not in the story is that the son carries the wood because he is fully obedient to his father. I I don't understand how you can see the parallels of the story. This is the gospel story anticipated in majestic detail. The journey that goes to that place was clearly with death in view there was a fire and a knife it was a place of sacrifice and so we think about the place today this is where the dome of the rock is if you go to Jerusalem it's where the uh, Muslims have that large beautiful golden dome the dome of the rock this is the place it's where the temple once stood and we think about where Jesus ultimately was Crucified. What was it called? Golgotha. It means skull hill. It was a big rock that looked like a skull. Place of death, place of rock, identified. Further in this passage, Abraham says to the young men that helped them on their journey, 
we will worship and will come back. He knew what he was going to do. He knew that he had to obey God, but he knew God had promised him something. And all he could say is that, I'm going to slay my son, but we're coming back. A burnt offering meant there would be nothing left. But he believed the son would come back with him. That's why the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 11, 19 said they believed that he would raise his son. There's resurrection faith. We know that's part of the Christian story. The son submits to the father's binding. We emphasize that. And then finally, as we look at that story, there's the staying of the slaying by the angel of the Lord. Now we need to ponder for a moment, who in the world is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament story, including earlier in the book of Genesis. And the angel of the Lord is present with God, but he seems to be distinct with God. He's given kind of divine-like qualities. Many theologians believe the angel of the Lord is a Christophany. It is the manifestation of Christ before the incarnation. And if that's the case, as Abram is ready to bring the knife down and plunge it into the bosom of his only son, whom he loved, it is Christ who says, stop. I know you love me. There would be no stopping for the angel of the Lord when he became the Lord Jesus Christ, when the wounds came upon him on the cross. So as we look at the story then, one of the things that's easy to overlook, but we must not. But what about Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Well, we know the story. There was a substitute for Isaac. It's this wonderful ram who's caught in the thicket by his big horns. And the Lord had provided someone to take the place for laughter, Isaac. But the question wasn't, well, where's the substitute or where's the ram? The question was, where's the lamb? And where's the lamb? Has it ever been answered? Remember, a ram was a substitute, but a ram is not a lamb. Take a good look at a ram. Take a good look at a lamb. When was Isaac's question finally answered? When did God become Jehovah Jireh and provide the lamb? Well, there's another body of water, not Beersheba. It's the waters that John the Baptist used. Do you remember what John the Baptist's message was? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He repeats it again later in John chapter 1, echoing down the corridors of redemptive history was the unanswered question of Isaac. Where is the lamb? And John the Baptist gives the answer when the Lord Jesus Christ appears. The God who provides, who provided for a way of sparing the son of the heart's love of Abraham named Isaac is a God who intended to provide the Savior for both Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and every other Israelite who trusted the Lord up to us. So, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides in Genesis 22, prepares the way for Jesus and John 1.29. Take a look at 1 Peter 1.18 through 20. Peter is writing, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Peter says when you look at the cross, you need to see the burnt offering of the lamb, perfect, without spot, 
according to a plan that goes way back farther than Abraham and Isaac, goes back into eternity before the foundation of the world. There was no substitute for Jesus as there was for Isaac. Jesus is the substitute for all of us. So what does a substitute do? A substitute is someone who takes the place of another. In the Bible, when we talk about the word atonement, and we put the word substitutionary in front of it, we are capturing the biblical idea of what happened at the cross. So first of all, what does the word atonement mean? Well, it literally means being at one with someone, reconciliation. And in the Christian sense of at one or atonement, it is God and man being united together through the sacrifice of the Savior, Jesus Christ. How does it work? It's because Jesus is suffering in the place of everyone for whom his sacrifice is intended. If we had gone to a burnt offering back in the day of the temple, when a burnt offering was given, the the male lamb would be offered, the priest would look at it to make sure it did not have any spot or blemish, nothing that was in that would disqualify it. And then the one who is bringing the lamb would take and place his hands upon the lamb with the priest, and they would confess that they needed someone to cleanse them. In this case, of even their unknown sins, their unintentional sins. And then it's a gruesome picture. The neck of the lamb would be cut, and it would let its blood pour. That is what happens in a sacrifice. Peter is trying to say, do you understand that Jesus' blood was shed like a lamb, one who is perfect, without blemish, and this was according to God's plan to take away human sin as our substitute? In other words, what are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death. How many are righteous that don't need to have a substitute to take away their sin? The Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one, except the one who is Jesus Christ, who is the substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be ours by faith. And so, in other words, what we find is that Jesus becomes like the ancient lamb that takes the place for the sinner who should die. The lamb takes his place. Jesus is that substitute for us. He is our substitutionary lamb who takes the sin punishment that is ours, and he does it on the cross. And so he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet the lamb who is slain, who stands victoriously in Revelation 5. Let's take a look at that Revelation 5, the passage that was wonderfully read as we started our worship service this evening. Take a look at Revelation chapter 5. As we start at verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the backs, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So it's an amazing scene. We have an image of God the Father upon his throne. He has a scroll that has seven seals closing it. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open this scroll and see what's in it? And no one in heaven or on earth is able to do it, which means that not even the angels, not even the elders that surround the throne in heaven are able to come and open this They're unfallen. They're utterly perfect. So clearly there can't be anybody on earth because we're all sinners down here. And no one was there. And it says, and I began to weep loudly. The the text in the Greek language actually could be translated, I began to weep and weep. John is overwhelmed as he's on the Isle of Patmos thinking, this scroll that's now I can see it in this wonderful opening of heaven to my gaze, and no one's ever going to find out what's in it. He said, I wept and I wept. 
And then it says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. In other words, stop. You don't have to weep any further. Behold, look, open your eyes and see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, there's now a reason for there to be tremendous joy because there is this lion figure who is the conqueror, the king of all the creatures. And he is from the tribe of Judah. He is a royal lion. And further, he's the root of David. He's even before David, if you will. David descends from him. David gets life from his life. And he's conquered. He's already victorious. And because of what he has done, because of his conquering, he can do what no one else can do. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, I just stop for a personal moment here. Many years ago, I had the joy to get to the Bodleian Library in uh, Oxford. Or is that London? I forgot where I am anymore. I said, it's London, isn't it? And uh, while I was there, I got to go in, and uh, a docent was going to give me a tour of this extraordinary library. Uh, When I was in the library at another time, I held in my hands one of the scrolls of John Wycliffe. It's pretty amazing, their holdings. This is an extraordinary place. And the docent showed me a picture of the scroll of the Bodleian Library, and it's a scroll with seven seals that are all opened. And I was listening, and the uh, person who was there said, would anyone happen to know where this symbol comes from? Of course, I like to be quiet. I don't want to be in front of it. But nobody could answer it. Silence in heaven, silence in the library. I said, well, sir, that comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. He was startled. I said, do you know that? I said, yes, it's right in the Bible. And he said, okay. I said, may I ask you a question, sir? He said, sure. Do you know why the seven seals are opened? Scratch and said, no. I said, it means Jesus has come here because he's the only one that can open them. I said, oh, let's continue our tour, please. <laughs> He didn't want to take that one on. Okay. So I love this passage for even that particular story. But it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because what we have here is this extraordinary moment where the triumphant lion is now there. So John turns his eyes as you look at the story. And what do we read next? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Wait, you're supposed to be looking for the lion. But he looks, and it's a lamb. And it's not just any kind of lamb. It's a lamb that's standing as though it had been slain. A lamb that had been a sacrificial lamb that conquered the sacrifice and was alive. A lion lamb. And that's the imagery that we see often If we look at some of the iconography of some church windows like we see here in this image here. But the lion of the tribe of Judah is the king. And nevertheless, he's also the lamb who is slain. But he's a victorious lamb. He's been resurrected. And so as we think about Genesis 22, the God who provides. And the question that was asked by Isaac, where is the lamb? We have to wait till we get to John the Baptist until we find it. But we don't appreciate the fullness of who the Lamb is until we get to the book of Revelation and see that his sacrifice is done. And now he's the risen, triumphant lion who is the Lamb that was slain. And while we don't have time to go through all of the passages here, uh, you could run through the book of Revelation, and it's the Lamb who's the conquering king in the book of Revelation. We can easily lose sight of that, but all the way from chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 14, 17, 19 to 21, it's the lamb. He's the lamb who's the king. So the image of absolute victory and profound suffering answers the question that was asked so many years earlier by Isaac. It takes the whole Bible to answer his question. Now, one last question we'll raise as we finish up. This story that we have here 
becomes one of the points of great contention in theology. We know if we read Romans chapter 4, it talks about how Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember Genesis 15, that great chapter of where the animals are parted and only God goes through the middle? The stars were shown, Abram believed, and the Lord said, that's your righteousness, you believed in me. And from that, we get that great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Only faith. He's righteous, and he believes it, and God credits his faith for righteousness. But then, if you're a Bible reader, you come to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is the passage where James says, well, you know, you're not justified by faith alone. You're justified by works. Okay, oh, and they say, well, how is that possible? Oh, he says it's biblical. Abram, who became Abraham, was justified when he offered his son. He did this extraordinary work. And because of our inability to interpret the Bible well, we've had, I guess, 2,000 years of conflict. Protestant versus Catholic and others. So how do we put those two together? Well, I, I like the statement that Spurgeon said many years ago about another doctrine. He said, how do you reconcile the two? You know, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God, the free will of man? He says, I don't. You don't reconcile, friends. These are not enemies. They're both true. You see, Abraham, Abram at the time, had no righteousness of his own that he could bring before God. He had to simply believe and receive what God gave And God alone passed through the parts of the animals, establishing the covenant. Theologians will call this the monergistic aspect of salvation. God alone, one-sided. God does it all. But it's interesting when you come to Genesis 17, just two chapters later, the Lord makes a covenant and he says, walk before me and be blameless. And he says, now, I remember the covenant that had nothing to do with you. I'm now making a covenant that's so personal, it's going to take part of your body away. It's called circumcision. You are going to be part of the sacrifice. You're going to be part of the covenant. Once you could do nothing, now you're part of it. Are those two stories in, in antithesis? No, one is bringing a believer into communion with God, and now one is bringing a believer into maturity in his faith with God. When Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4, Abraham was justified by faith, it's absolutely true. He needed to be forgiven and cleansed. When James tells us, but a faith that has no change in your life is not a saving faith. A real faith is one that not only believes God, but says, Lord, as imperfectly as it may be. Stop and think about it. When this story came to Abraham in uh, Genesis 22, at that moment in time, this tremendous story of sacrifice had come in. And what do we read? He rose up early in the morning and began the process. He didn't say, Lord, I'm going to talk to you about that in the morning. We're going to go on a little retreat. We're going to pray about this. He said, oh, Lord, I'm Now, most of us don't have the kind of faithful obedience that Abraham had. But isn't that the story of our lives? If we're a believer and the Lord says something, how do I do that? And we wrestle. We say, Lord, you're the Lord. I've got to do it. How do I do it? And so the point is that there is a justification of the sinner, Romans 4, Genesis 15, and a justification of the justified, James 2, and, if you will, Genesis 22. If faith is real, over time, there will be evidence that our lives are beginning to change. It could be small, but faith is like a seed. It's a good seed, and it begins to sprout, begins to make a difference. Justification is an absolute act and completed. Sanctification is a process that is ongoing and it keeps going until finally it's finished by God and we're glorified. 
And so I'd like to suggest that the story of Abraham and the story of his sacrifice of Isaac is a beautiful explanation of the very name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his three names? They come together for the first time in the book of Acts on on Peter's Pentecost sermon. This Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus, Lord, Christ. That's his name. Pentecost day, he is now the Lord Jesus Christ. We know his name Jesus means salvation in Hebrew. Yeshua or Joshua means savior. And Christ, what does it mean? It means he's anointed, set aside for his work. He is set aside so that he might uh, do all that God called him to do in his office as ultimately prophet, priest, and king. But he's also Lord. Means he is king. Means he is in charge. Which means he has authority to call on us to live our lives in his manner, in his way. The lordship of Christ cannot be separated from the saving work of Christ. To do that is to tear Jesus into pieces. That's what John Calvin will say. Do we tear Christ into pieces? I want him as Savior. I don't want him as Lord. No, you take Jesus in all of his offices as prophet, priest, and king. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these two stories that we find are emphasizing the reality that on the one hand, the Bible teaches us that we are justified exclusively through faith, which is a wonderful answer, if you will, to works righteousness. Now, you can't do enough. You cannot be a Pharisee and make yourself good enough for God. Nobody can do it. On the other hand, James chapter 2, the sacrifice of Isaac, this is an answer to what we call the libertine. The person who says, I want to do what I want to do, and Jesus has to love me without even concern for my life. I'll tell him what to do. So on the one hand, we don't become Pharisees. On the other hand, we don't become libertines to do whatever we want. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham is our father in both cases. Beggar's hands receiving forgiveness. A heart with gratitude saying, Lord, how do I honor what you've called me to do? Tonight, then, my, my hope is that you might see Jesus in his dual office, both as lamb and as lion. As your lamb, he's laid down his life that you might be forgiven, cleansing your sin by his blood. As a lion, he's your king, and he's roaring. Say, follow me. I'm your Lord. I am the king. Abraham and Isaac teach us these things. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word tonight. We've scratched the surface of many important things. We ask that you would teach us the truths that we need for our own hearts to please you. We praise you and thank you for the redemption we have in the cross of Christ and in the new life that you give to us. And we pray, Father, that Abraham might have his name honored among us, that he's the father of nations, including this nation of believers. And, Lord, we pray that we might also know Isaac of laughter, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. And, Lord, we pray that we might know you for who you are as the Lord, Jesus Christ. And in that matchless name we pray. Thank you, Pete. Um, is there a is there a uh, thumb drive on this one? What's that? Thumb drive. Yes, I have it. Okay. If you want, um, if you want copies of the slides, and you haven't already given me your name and address for that, or name and email address for that, then um, write it out on one of those cards in front of you, and uh, put it in the offering plate over here. And we'll get you a copy of the slides. So thank you very much, Pete. Thank you for all the work that you did in putting all this together. We appreciate you a lot. Um, last hymn. Now, you see, this sheet, I ran out of sheets. 
I ran out of space on the sheet, so you didn't get the last one in there. Our secretary didn't get that done this week. And so we're going to sing 74, which is Majesty, but it's underneath in the hymn books, the green hymn books underneath your chairs. And if you pull one of those out and um, turn to 74 in there, we're going to sing Majesty together. So give them just a second, Gloria, so they can get the books out. receive God's benediction unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, our Savior, be power, honor, glory, majesty, and dominion, both now and forevermore. Amen. See you next week.